TCL's latest smartphone flagship is the TCL 20 Pro 5G. I've been snuggling with this phone for about a month, and it's time to share some thoughts. Plus, Cliff has some thoughts on the Microsoft Duo, so we've got a full show ahead of us. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we have our full review of the TCL 20 Pro. And I'll give you the TLDR version. It's a nice little mid-range phone. I've been using it as my daily driver for about a month now, and I'm ready to give some thoughts. Also, Cliff, a few weeks ago, picked up a Microsoft Duo that he's been playing with. Microsoft's dual-screen wonder started off at $1,400 and recently dropped to 4 So you can imagine, things have not been going so well for the Microsoft Duo. Well, we'll get Cliff's thoughts on why that is, and we'll get to all of that. But first, we have to get to the news of the week. A couple of weeks ago, the Cleveland Indians announced that as an organization, they would be changing their name to the Cleveland Guardians. Indians, as you know, is a fair bit insensitive to our Native American brothers and sisters whose land you know, we all live on. Well, it took a long time, but finally the Cleveland Baseball Club is fixing that. Named after the Guardians of Traffic statues on a nearby bridge, this is a fitting tribute to... I don't know, Star-Lord and Groot? But there's one tiny problem. Before the Cleveland Baseball Club settled on the name Guardians, before they announced the name, and before they had Tom freaking Hanks voice a video announcing the name... They kind of forgot to check to see if www.clevelandguardians.com was available. Or the Twitter name. Or the Facebook name. They never checked any of this stuff. And as it turns out, there is a male roller derby team. Yes, apparently male roller derby teams are a thing. But there is one called the Cleveland Guardians. Want to guess what their website address is? Or their Twitter handle? Or their Facebook name? Yeah, as the Germans would say, Oh, whoopsie doodle. Honestly, this is a stupid mistake that the Cleveland baseball team should have settled long before they made any announcements, but they didn't. And now the Cleveland Guardians, the roller derby team, is about to get paid, bro. Deadspin guesses that it'll end up being a six-figure settlement to purchase those digital assets, and that's got to be good for a few new uniforms and sets of gear, right? Good on ya, Guardian Roller Derby guys. And as for the Cleveland baseball team, who um, <clears throat> lost the 2016 World Series after being up three games to one, by the way, as for you guys... Y'all screwed up. Y'all screwed up in 2016. Y'all screwed up in 2021. Good luck with that, Guardians. Maybe you should look up www.clevelandyallscrewedup.com. See if that's available. Because y'all screwed up. On Monday, Google rolled out a Twitter thread very slowly rolled out a Twitter thread containing details about the upcoming Pixel 6, including colorways, the more exciting of which will be on the smaller phones, by the way. Google announced the names of the Pixel 6 and the Pixel 6 <sighs> Pro. 
We learned a lot about the processor that's going into the phone. It's called the Tensor, and it's made by Google. All of this was revealed in a 13-tweet thread that took 30 long, excruciating minutes to post. It's like they got an intern from a DMV to help them post a tweets or something. Anyway, in addition to the sloth-like thread, Google had some folks from some major publications over to chat, and they all made videos about it. In particular, I enjoyed the linked video from The Verge, and I'm going to play you a part of that in a second. Dieter Bone's overall impression of the Pixel 6 is that Google is, quote, going for it, as in Google is aiming at making a premium, high-end smartphone. Google's been sticking around the mid-range market for years now, but suddenly Google is interested in making and selling Google phones. Dieter and friends got a few demos of Google's tech while they were chatting, and one part really stood out to me, and here's the clip. Google did show me a few demos. In one, there was a photo of a kid whose face was super blurry because the kid was moving and flailing around because that's what kids do. But the TPU was able to fix it so the kid's face wasn't blurry. What Google says happened here is the main camera did the usual thing that Google's you know cameras have always done. It took a bunch of photos, gathered lots of image data, but that the ultra wide sensor on the Pixel 6 does something new. It is there just to get a super fast shot to minimize blur. And so with this new tensor processing unit, what they can do without making you wait for it is it's machine learning sees that there is a face there and that we hate blurry faces. So it grabbed that data from the ultra wide, combined it with the regular data that Google's always grabbed, combined them and you have a sharp photo. So overall, this sounds like it could be a pretty killer phone. I doubt I will have the budget to buy one, but I'm planning on picking up a Pixel 5a whenever that gets announced, and that will be reviewed, so that'll be fun. Whatever the case, when the reviews start to drop, I'll at least have someone on to talk about it. These next two stories are fun in that they came up around the same time, and they're both centered on efforts of fans to steer corporate decisions. An effort which very, very, very rarely works, but works often enough to keep fans trying. The first, which will almost certainly not work, comes from the website Sam Mobile, who started a petition on change.org, you know, the website that doesn't actually change anything, to insist that Samsung not make a Galaxy S22 in the spring, but instead release a new Galaxy Note. It's a cute idea, and when you think about it, there is some merit to the idea. Mobile phones have about an 18-month development cycle, meaning that a phone released in spring of 2022 almost certainly was first sketched onto the back of a cocktail napkin in the fall of 2020. It's very likely that R&D and modeling and prototyping went into a probable Note 21 that all got scrapped when the chip shortage hit. So rather than wasting all that work, maybe they can just put out the Note in the spring. Then they need to decide what to do with all the work and R&D and prototyping that went into the Galaxy S22, but that's a can that we can kick further down the road. Another fan effort to revive a beloved series, Stargate fans from around the world have begun the 365 Days of Stargate, which is a year-long celebration geared towards making Amazon make a new in-canon Stargate TV series to go along with Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, and Stargate Universe. 
Now, I'm not sure if this one has a chance to succeed either, but there are a few things that Stargate has going in its favor. First of all, I'm a fan, so I mean, what more do you need? But no, seriously, first is that Amazon is in the market for new content and doesn't mind dropping some coin on it. For reference, see the $465 million that Amazon invested in its Lord of the Rings prequel that's coming soon. Amazon already revived The Expanse for many seasons, so this is not unprecedented. Secondly, Brad Wright, who originally wrote and produced all three Stargate series, has been talking about working on a Stargate project or two for months now. A lot of what he'd been doing got put on hold by the pandemic and by Amazon buying up MGM, so there are a lot of question marks there for sure. But finally, it seems like when it comes to fans getting projects resurrected, it's usually in the form of TV shows. Off the top of my head, there's Veronica Mars and Firefly, both of which got new movies made to tie up loose ends. There's also Jericho and Designated Survivor, who both put an extra season on before getting canceled you know, a second time. So there's a lot of precedent for this happening. Will it actually happen? I have no idea, but it's awesome to think about. I'd love to see what new adventures can come out of Stargate Command, and in this era of streaming content, it seems ripe for a revival. So if I had to put money on anything, I'd put money on Stargate fans over Samsung fans. I wouldn't put a hell of a lot of money on them, but I would put my money on them. This next story really cements the story around what I was beginning to suspect was the Mandela effect going on in my head. Back in 2001, the Segway was first introduced to the public, and though I had only barely just graduated college at the time, and yes, I'm old, thanks for pointing that out, you jerk. But anyway, I remember the story of the Segway being this ultra-hyped major Uber story that deflated spectacularly like the Star Trek TNG episode Best of Both Worlds Part 2, which I maintain to this day is the absolute worst cliffhanger payoff in the history of television. Don't at me. And so it turns out that the hype actually was real, and that the hype is basically what ultimately killed the Segway, and Slate has a chronicle of the story from the perspective of a junior book publisher who was working on a book about the development of the Segway when it was being developed. It's a fascinating tale that I highly suggest you read. I've put a link in the show notes, but let me give you a little taste of the hype before I send you off to read it. Jeff Bezos called the Segway revolutionary. Steve Jobs said it was as significant as the personal computer and that cities would have to design themselves around this device. I mean, you want to talk about hype? That's hype. And the rest of the story is there for you to read. It's a long read, but worth it. It's also a fascinating look at the tech landscape as it existed back in 2001. And let me just tell you, we had no idea what was about to happen. This week saw a scientific breakthrough by Google's quantum computer, the formation of time crystals. Now, before I go into detail here, I need to tell you that I spent three hours reading articles from this week and all the way back to 2017 trying to understand what time crystals are, including a Vice article actually titled WTF are time crystals. And I still don't get it. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, 
What? You spent three whole hours trying to grasp a physics construct that most physicists today still don't understand and you don't get it? What are you, an idiot? And the answer to that is yes and very much yes. But still, I would love to tell you all about time crystals, but they are simply beyond my comprehension. What I can tell you is that a whole lot of really smart people are really excited about this. I also can't tell you definitively if the Google quantum computer actually made these time crystals, or if the computer simply figured out that they were possible. Like, did the crystals actually exist inside the computer? I honestly have no idea, because I'd read one article that suggested it did, and then I would read another article that wouldn't say specifically that it did. It's all really nerdy and I'm afraid I just don't speak that flavor of nerd, but I have read multiple articles that claim that this, and not the segue, could actually be the scientific breakthrough of our lives. Will it improve the lives of you and me? Probably not anytime soon, but it's still all very exciting. Or so I'm told. Google rolled out four new Nest devices this week in the Nest Cam Outdoor, Indoor Nest Cam, Nest Cam Floodlight, and Hello Nest Doorbell. Nest Hello Doorbell, sorry about that. It's a stupid name. And the last one is really the only reason why this is on the list. The Nest Hello Doorbell is over three years old, so seriously, it's about time it got an update. The Nest Hello Doorbell is the first doorbell camera that I actually liked, even though it has been replaced by my Vivint Doorbell Pro because it goes along with the rest of my Vivint system. That being said, the rumor bill has it that I'll be reviewing this Nest Doorbell for digital trends, so stay tuned for that. All of the cameras, except the floodlight, can be run on battery, which is new for the Nest Doorbell and the outdoor camera. It's a welcome change for sure. Doorbells are fairly straightforward to wire up, but in the DIY space, cameras get a lot trickier. I've done it, but I don't really like to do it. Anyway, the new devices will all run on Google's new Tensor chips, so suddenly that thread earlier in the week makes a lot more sense. After all, how can you announce a new line of smart home devices without officially announcing the processor? Well played, Google. So if you're in the market for a doorbell or a camera, I recommend Nest Hello. It's been my favorite of all the ones that I've tested, and trust me, I've tested a lot of them. So this is interesting. This week, Xiaomi dethroned Samsung as the world's top smartphone maker, and by top, I mean sells the most, because let's face it, you can make an amazing smartphone palm, but if you can't sell them, you're going home empty-handed, or worse, you're going home as HP's bitch. So Xiaomi clearly knows how to sell phones, but this is also happening as reports are coming out saying that the Galaxy S line of phones is seriously underperforming, and duh, you tried to sell a plastic phone for $1,000. Some want to say that Samsung phones are so good that people are holding on to them for longer and longer, but then explain the iPhone. Oh, right. Anyway, Xiaomi is dominating in China thanks to the fall of Huawei, and now they're dominating globally thanks in part to declining sales in Samsung's phones, and likely LG's departure has a lot to do with that as well. OnePlus is still getting its sea legs back in the mid-range space, so honestly the floodgates are open for Xiaomi, and frankly... Good for Xiaomi. I've been a fan of Xiaomi phones since I reviewed the Mi Mix 2 years ago for Board at Work, and I love getting my hands on them whenever I can, which, you know, being a citizen of the United States is not all that often. Maybe that'll change too, but for now, Xiaomi is doing great, Samsung is not, and the world is upside down. 
So this news blew up on the internet on Thursday. Apple released details on a new plan to scan photos in your iPhone and compare it against a database of known child sex abuse images and basically call the police if it finds any. Furthermore, Apple will also scan children's iMessages and alert parents when and if any content is sent or received by their phones. Now, I want to be clear here that all this broke on Thursday night and blew up on Friday morning, and I record on Friday, so I've had less than a day to process this. And when I try to read any of the technical details on how all this works, my eyes kind of start to glaze over... So, you know, I did tweet some hot takes on this on Friday, but I'm going to reserve my final comments until I know more or really anything about this. But for now, just know that it all happened, and I'm too much of an idiot to know whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. But I suspect it's not an awesome thing. What I will say thus far is that this seems to fly in the face of the privacy wardrum that Apple has been beating all along. Some experts say that this is a good compromise and that Apple is doing this while keeping your privacy at the forefront of its philosophy. I don't buy that, and mainly the child-parent thing is what's bugging me the most. Now, this is an option that parents can turn off. But Apple will proactively notify a child's parents if it detects any kind of inappropriate material on their iMessages. And by that I mean child porn, not to put too fine a point on it. And I get that. If your 10-year-old is being sent dick pics, yeah, you probably want to know about that. Apple's heart is in the right place here. And for the record, I think the implementation is actually fairly good. But this is a very, very small step away from Apple sending mom a notification saying, gosh, your daughter likes to say fuck a lot, or your daughter has said she stole $30 out of your wallet, or your daughter is showing Republican tendencies. All truly horrible things. And I promise you, there is no parent out there that will object to knowing these things if given half the chance. Oh, parents will say they object to it, but they don't object to it. All this makes me seriously question Apple's commitment to privacy. Not that I didn't question it before, but, you know, now I have some evidence. And finally, Disney World unveiled a new Star Wars experience that you can buy in a new hotel that's being built on Disney property. This experience will be a new Star Wars hotel being built called Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. It's described as part live immersive theater, part themed restaurant, part culinary extravaganza, and part real-life role-playing game. And it's going to cost you $6,000 for a two-night stay for a family of four. Yikestown population you, bro. The two-night stay does not include alcoholic drinks, which, while I was initially critical of that, it occurs to me that if you're dropping six grand on a weekend stay, you're probably going to want to remember it. The experience allows you to dress up and interact with characters and participate in air quotes missions. Uh, they've organized lightsaber training and a scheduled shuttle to Galaxy's Edge, the section of Hollywood Studios Park. Overall, it's a lot, and I have to think that there are going to be too many opportunities for diehard Star Wars fans to get annoyed with casual Star Wars fans. I hate to put a stereotype on it, but can't you just see some uber nerd getting in the face of some dude who's just wearing jeans and screaming at them that those jeans are not standard issue wear for Rebels? I'm just not sure this kind of mingling is going to be awesome for the whole experience. 
but it's coming in 2022 and Disney is really committed to it and if you want to drop the six grand on it then I have to believe that you're going to deserve everything that you're going to get It started with The Courier in 2010, a prototype device created by Microsoft to explore concepts on how a simplified touch and pen-enabled user interface can make the user more productive, and how it could serve as a complement to a PC rather than as a replacement. It had two 7-inch screens that folded closed into a size similar to that of a moleskin notebook. It was never produced, and the project died on the vine in that same year. I was inspired by the concept video that leaked of the Courier, and apparently so was Panos Panay and the Surface team. For years, that group toiled over a device known internally as Andromeda. Conceptually, it was quite like the Courier concept, particularly in the hardware design. It was intended to run a version of Windows optimized for the internals and the way users would interact with it. However, the struggle bus they boarded along the path to development led them to change directions and switch to a tried-and-true operating system with a user base of millions and a ready-made ecosystem of apps, Android, from Google, a huge competitor to Microsoft. Thus, in 2020 was born the Microsoft Surface Duo, a super-thin, elegantly engineered device that looked like nothing else on the market. It was at $1,400, very expensive, prohibitively so for most. It was released with a bevy of software flaws and bugs, a camera that was terrible to use for what many use cameras on their smartphone for, namely pictures of the world around them and selfies, and internal specs that were not on par with its peers in the folding device space, or even if flagship devices released a year or more previous. It didn't help that Microsoft's Android experience was developed not by a Microsoft entity, but by a third-party company hired to make all the novelties of the Duo work, which it did, some of the time, until it didn't. Okay, now that the stage has been set and the story told, here's where I come in. I'll admit I really wanted the Duo. After handling one in person, I was in love with its hardware design and the general idea of it, more so than any of the foldables from Samsung by a country mile. But was I $1,400 in love with it? Hell no! Fast forward about nine months after the Duo's introduction in October 2020. The Duo seemed headed to fire sale levels of cost, and I waited, and waited until it hit the $500 level I deemed suitable for taking a chance on buying one, and I did. And let's be clear, there's a risk anytime you purchase a device discounted to a third of its original price. The manufacturer may end support for the device, repair parts and service could be hard to come by, and what initially looked like a steal may become tomorrow's paperweight. Ask anyone who bought an Amazon Fire phone, if you can find anyone who'll admit to buying one. So what's it like to own a $500 Surface Duo? Well, it's a mixed bag of awesome and... oh no. I'll attempt to fully explain that statement with a series of question and answer sessions with... myself. It should be fun. Is it good at making you more productive? Yes it is. I love the ability to sit in a meeting with apps like Trello open on one screen and Outlook or a browser on the other. I like that I can set up sets of apps to open with just a touch of a home screen shortcut. Honestly, I haven't even explored all the ways it can make me more productive since I'm constantly switching devices, so I think it'll only get better from here on the productivity side. Is it a phone? 
Um, not really. I mean, yes. In the same way that a battle axe could be used to cut carrots. We couldn't do it, but it's not very practical. Like the passport from Blackberry, it's very wide, even in its folded state, which makes the handling less than ideal. It's not terrible, it's just not very good either. This is where having a set of Bluetooth headphones connected comes in quite handy when using the Duo. Is the camera any good? Define good. Is it a good camera for taking pictures of basically anything for lasting memories? Yeah, no. It's very, very bad at that. It does work just fine for a Zoom meeting. The different postures can make that quite nice, actually, since you can set it up in different ways to allow it to rest on a flat surface rather than holding it. When you realize the intention of the device was not for being creative with the camera, the positioning of the camera on the screen rather than on the back makes a lot more sense. Just don't take pictures with it. Is it durable? I mean, is any phone outside of the rugged ones made by companies like Bullet really that durable? The Duo is glass on all sides, it's really thin, and it only comes with a bumper. There's also next to no cases available for it. Let's just say, I hope I don't have to find out the hard way what the real answer to that question is. Do people ask you what it is when they see you use it? Surprisingly, it hasn't drawn any looks or questions from people who have seen me use it, and frankly, I'm okay with that. I think it's the exquisite minimalism of the design that makes it not stand out so much, despite the unconventional nature of it. So, it's not very durable, it's not good as a phone, it's not a visual statement, and the camera sucks. Why on earth would anyone buy it? Because it's different. Because it's fun to use. Because it has so many neat little details, like the peak feature that shows you the time and other information when you open it up a little bit. Because it's awesome at multitasking. Because you can set it on a table in tent mode and watch videos on it like a tiny little two-in-one laptop. Because some people that aren't me are heavily invested in Microsoft services and the Duo is pretty darn good at making use of them. Does it come with Microsoft Solitaire? <sighs> yes. Finally, will it blend? So, those are just a few of the questions I figured listeners might ask, and I hope I've answered them in a way that helped. I'll struggle with a good way to express what it's like to use, because it's so different from anything else I've owned, but I think this sums it up pretty well. The Duo is the best, worst, not a phone phone you can get, but probably shouldn't. But I did, and I'm glad. Mostly. This week, we're taking a look at the latest flagship from TCL, who is a company that is making waves in the smartphone space. It has long been an ODM for manufacturers like Alcatel and BlackBerry, but now it's slapping its own sticker onto its phones, and it's bringing two things to its phones that are particularly exciting. First is amazing screen technology, which is evident not only in this flagship, but also in the promised foldable coming later this year. Second, TCL has a philosophy that top-tier tech doesn't necessarily have to be top-tier priced. That's certainly the case here, but what does top-tier tech actually mean? Let's find out. This is our full review of the TCL 20 Pro 5G.
First of all, let me start by echoing co-producer Cliff's words when he said, I can't wait until we can stop calling phones 5G and just call them phones. Anyway, the TCL 20 Pro 5G is the latest offering from TCL, so let's take a little tour around the phone. On the right side of the phone, you have a silver power button with a nice red accent. Above that is the volume rocker, and that is the correct order of buttons, by the way. On the top, you have an IR blaster, which is not something you see very often, but it's always a welcome sight. There's also a headphone jack. On the right side, you'll have a smart button. On the TCL20S and the TCL20SE, this is a Google Assistant button. On the TCL20 Pro, this is a programmable smart key which can be used for Google Assistant or any number of other functions. Those function with a press, a double press, and a long press. So that's three different things that you can do with this button. On the bottom, you have your SIM tray, USB-C port, and single downwards firing speaker. That is a single firing speaker, by the way. The speaker port is the only sound producer on the phone, and in my time with the phone, I rarely, if ever, accidentally covered that speaker. You also get a 4500 milliamp hour battery with 18 watt quick charging and 15 watt wireless charging. One quirk I noticed about the wireless charging is that when the phone is done charging wirelessly, like when it gets up to 100%, wireless charging just stops for some reason. This resulted in often waking up with a 91% charge battery instead of 100%. That got a little annoying. The back plate is glass and has an anti-fingerprint coating on most of it that really works. There's a reflective stripe running up the left side with TCL branding in the corner and the quad camera setup along the left side of the phone. The camera does not cause a bump, unlike basically every other phone in the world. Like the TCL 10 Pro, the flash actually protrudes from the back ever so slightly, which is weird, but it's not off-putting, nor does it cause the phone to wobble when sitting flat on the table. On the front, you have a 6.67-inch gorgeous Full HD Plus display tuned with TCL's NextVision 2.0 software that tweaks the colors on the display to make this pop just a little bit more. This is a 2.5D curved display, unfortunately, but it's not as touchy as the OnePlus 9 Pro. While I certainly did experience phantom touches due to excessive hand beat when playing games in landscape, it was tolerable, but honestly, just barely. Can we stop making curved phones, please? The front of the phone also holds a 32 megapixel selfie camera that we'll talk about later and an underscreen fingerprint sensor, which is pretty fast and accurate. I've gotten to the point where I'm ready to stop complaining about the underscreen fingerprint sensors. They're fine, especially when I compare it against the hot garbage that is the Touch ID sensor on my seventh generation iPad. Believe me, compared to that, any underscreen fingerprint sensor is going to be just fine. The screen has impressive viewing angles and gets plenty bright enough to see clearly outdoors. Color reproduction is excellent, despite the fact that this is a 1080p screen, it looks every bit as premium as you'd expect from TCL. Overall, when you set this phone down on a table, it just exudes quality and premium build materials. If you saw this phone in somebody's hand, you'd probably be hard pressed to guess that this is a $500 phone. It simply looks like it should cost more. On the software side, this is where TCL really shines, and it's in multiple areas. The first one we have to talk about is the Next Vision, which is the software that TCL uses to tune the screen. You get image enhancement, video and game enhancement, reading mode, and more. Put simply, and we've talked about this in the past, you can make the screen pretty much look however you want it to look. 
Along the curved edges of the screen, you get the edge bar. Swiping in with a translucent grab bar, you can get a list of contact shortcuts, app shortcuts, remote functions, phone functions, and a ruler. To be honest, the ruler is what I used most often, and by most often, I mean at all. It's about the only reason I like having a curved screen, to be honest. One fun thing the TCL does is allow you to swipe horizontally between folders on the phone. If you accidentally open the wrong folder rather than collapsing it and tapping on the right one, often you could just swipe to the left or to the right to get to the folder you actually want. It's a TCL-specific function that I love that I miss when I'm on other phones. But this next thing was a wow moment for me. When you connect a pair of headphones like... For example, the TCL Move Audio S600s, which will be a subject of a later show, a little window was going to pop open in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen that says, Hey, I see you just connected a set of Bluetooth headphones. I'm guessing that you want to open Pocket Cast. And yes, fam, hell yes. It's such a simple thing, but I, I honestly love it so much. The app that the phone recommends is based on your habits, and as you may have guessed, listening to podcasts is a pretty big habit for me. This is a feature that I will one hundo miss when I move on to other phones. Google, steal this rapidly. I mentioned the smart key before, and the software section seems like a good place to talk about it, since it's configured with an app. Like I said, the default is set to Google's Assistant, but you can set it to just about anything you want. One relic I kept from the cat phone that I just reviewed was the double press to turn on the flashlight. Unlike the S62, the double press works when the phone screen is off, so it's a hell of a lot better. It's akin to the chop-chop on Motorola phones, and TCL should definitely keep the hell out of this button, too. Beyond that, the software on this phone is very similar to stock Android. I went the controversial route and elected not to have an app launcher. My app organization game is so on point that I'm down to a single home screen, whether I have an app drawer or not. One nice thing about this mode is when you swipe up, which would normally summon the app drawer, you instead get to search for apps, which is in some ways faster than an app drawer anyway. The search also saves your last few searches so you can get to them with a single tap, and that was super handy when I was looking for the Yale app to unlock my delivery box on my front porch. So with that, let's move on to the camera. The TCL 20 Pro 5G, aside from having way too many letters and numbers in its name, also has a quad-ish camera setup on the back. On the back, you'll find a 48-megapixel Sony sensor, a 16-megapixel ultra-wide sensor, a 5-megapixel macro sensor, and a 2-megapixel depth sensor. TCL says you can get some 2x lossless in there with the main sensor. I took a few shots, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Unfortunately, in this array, the bottom camera is the main camera, which in one way is a good because it keeps your fingers as far away from the main sensor as possible when you're shooting photos, but on the other hand, my brand new detachable bike mount covers the 48 megapixel sensor, so that made taking sample photos annoying and kind of negates the purpose of me buying a newly acquired bike mount. Thanks a lot, TCL. 
Anyway, the camera app is pretty standard to what you'll find in most cameras these days. There's your typical auto mode, video mode, portrait mode. Then you'll get the various other modes like slow mode and light painting and panorama. It's all pretty standard stuff, so how does this camera perform? Well, during the day in good light, this phone's camera is what I like to call social media good. What that means is you can snap a photo and share it to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and it's gonna look really good. And that's perfectly acceptable for a vast majority of people who are going to seriously shop for this phone. Photos start to break down a lot when you blow them up to their full resolution. Shadows in particular get splotchy and pixelated. Details become blocky and lost. Even details like the Apple logo at the Apple Store, which I'll admit I only took sample photos of to troll my YouTube audience a little bit, but even the Apple comes out looking a little choppy and blocky when blown up to its full resolution. Now, I would argue that those who are in the market for a mid-range $500 phone are not going to be snapping photos and blowing them up to full size to be printed as posters for their Christmas cards. So, in case that is your use case, don't buy this phone. For everyone else, during the day, this phone is perfectly fine. Color tuning on the ultra-wide lens is not the same as the main sensor. Photos are actually a bit brighter on the ultra-wide than they are in the main sensor, so if you're looking for a photo that pops a little bit more, try the ultra-wide on for size. One other note regarding the main camera during the day, and this is something that carries over from the older generations of TCL phones, showing flowers in direct sunlight gives the colors an almost neon effect, just like, I'm not even sure if saturating the color is the right term the effect is rather overpowering and i would say it actually ruins shots of flowers but let's face it you know they're flowers it's not like you're channeling your inner pablo picasso by shooting a flower bed all the same it's a startling effect and it's one of the only conditions under which i would say that this camera leans towards being bad and that effect carries over to macro shots. It's not to the same extent. Actually, I would say that this is one of my favorite phones to shoot macro shots with. The depth of field is really solid and the details are actually very sharp. So in terms of macro shooting, I'll tip my cap to TCL. It should come as no surprise that the zoom that you can get out of this phone at 2x is just as good as the main sensor because the zoom is a crop of the main sensor. It's all digital, which is fine. When you're working with a 48 megapixel sensor, you have some room to play around a little bit. Zooming in any more than 2x is a terrible idea, so just don't do it. And there, I think we've adequately covered zoom. Action shots are honestly not very good. Even in burst mode, there's a ton of blur all over the place, and that's just bouncing up and down that my daughter is limited to right now. If she'd been attempting any flips or achieving any height, I'd imagine the quality would just go downhill. So if you have kids or you're planning on shooting any kind of motion, this is not the camera for you. The selfie camera is a 32 megapixel shooter in what TCL calls the Dutch, but shouldn't call the Dutch. Anyway, the selfie camera is fairly average in good light, though portrait mode leaves something to be desired. It's not terrible, but also not very good. I'd plant this camera firmly in the serviceable category, and that includes portrait mode. Portrait mode on the selfie camera is pretty terrible at picking out edges, even nipping off the edge of my hat. Cutting out wisps of hair in portrait mode, I'll forgive. Cutting out part of my hat, not so much. 
Portrait mode is much better in the rear camera, and in that area I have few complaints, though while most cameras will blur out a little bit too much at the edges and end up catching part of your shirt or your hair, TCL's camera actually kind of goes the other way with that, leaving too much of the edges intact, including parts of the background. But overall, when it comes to portrait mode, I have very few complaints. At night, the camera on this phone is kind of a mixed bag, and that's actually a blessing because at the $500 price point, cameras are usually just flat out bad, and TCL pulls off some decent stuff here. Now, before I go too far, I need to reiterate my evaluation that this camera is social media good. If you blow up any of these shots, they become unusable. Indeed, the ultrawide camera is a bit of a train wreck at night. You really shouldn't use it. But as long as you stick with the main sensor, you can get some actually decent shots. Macro shots have some focus issues, but for normal photos, you can get by with this camera. Yes, you still get grainy darks and streaky lights, and there's noise here and there. No one's saying that there isn't. But honestly, these shots are actually pretty decent for social media, and I can't emphasize that enough. By the way, TCL's Super Night Mode, which is basically a long exposure, looks a lot more natural on this phone than it did on the 10 Pro. It's less like a nuclear explosion and more just a brightening up of things. Well done on that regard, TCL. You are learning, and we're proud of you. Moving on to video, the stabilization is not as good as I'd usually like to see it. When I'm walking with the camera, you can tell when I'm stepping. It's almost like the stabilization is overcorrecting for my steps, which itself is as distracting as the steps themselves. That being said, I have certainly seen much worse in cameras. On the literal flip side, the selfie camera has actually really good stabilization, so if you're a walk-and-talk blogger, you'll dig the stabilization here. That's very similar to what we've seen from expensive phones that I've tested this year, but this is probably the first one in this price range that does selfie stabilization this well. So overall, I have to say that video is pretty decent on this phone during the day. At night, you get a lot of the same as you'll see in other cameras. Graininess, focus issues, blown out highlights. I like to say that those attributes are a little more pronounced than you'll see on more premium phones, but I need to make this clear. No phone that I've tested thus far in 2021 has done anything in the video department particularly well at night, so you are not unique here, TCL. Overall, I'd say that there are really no surprises here. For a mid-range phone, this camera is quite respectable. Yes, it has its challenges, and yes, it has challenges that haven't been improved on since last year. But there have been some improvements, which is great to see, and I'll be interested to see how TCL can further improve camera performance later this year and next year. On the performance end, I have no complaints. This phone carries the Qualcomm Snapdragon 750G, which is a very solid performer, very similar to the 765G from last year. There's no stutter or lag when opening apps or switching between them. Games like Call of Duty Mobile perform mostly just fine, though I did get the occasional hiccup in the game. It was very few and far between, and the phantom touches in the corner made the game a lot more annoying than the occasional stutter. As for numbers, Geekbench's CPU test returns a 623 single score and 1934 multi-score. That's on par with a Snapdragon 845, which granted is three generations old at this point, but was fairly decent in its day. Battery life? It's kind of a mixed bag. I very much enjoy the wireless charging that comes with this phone, but at the same time, the battery will give you a day 
barely. With a 4,500 milliamp hour battery, that's frankly surprising. And I'd have to say overall, the battery life on the TCL 20 Pro is average to below average. So keep that in mind when you're looking for a bit of longevity. Add to that the issue with the wireless charging, and it's fair to say that I'm not impressed with the battery life here. So where does that leave us? Overall, this is a very nice phone that's easy to pick up and justify its cost. The premium build materials and gorgeous screen ensure that your phone will look good and have solid performance. The cameras, they're better than last year, but not the greatest. Where TCL really shines is in the software. That is my favorite part of this phone, hands down. The premium look and feel is nice, the screen is great, and the camera is serviceable. But I really love this little software tricks that TCL has worked in here, even if they've come at the expense of normal Android features like live caption. Speaking of software and Android features, remember that the TCL 20 Pro 5G also participates in the Android 12 beta program, which is awesome as well. Honestly, when I put this phone down to move on to my next review, the software is what I'm going to miss the most by far. So, should you buy this phone? It's kind of a tough call, considering the Pixel 5a is going to be coming soon, and considering how much I enjoyed the Pixel 4a, this phone is going to have some very stiff competition. I think it all comes down to what you're looking for in a phone. If you want a great camera, this is not your phone. If you like premium hardware and some fun software, then yes, this phone is an absolute winner. But more importantly, this phone is a great evolution of product from the TCL 10 Pro to the TCL 20 Pro. There are a lot of important improvements in this phone, and that's the most exciting thing to see here. TCL has the hardware down pat, and it has the software set and ready to go. If TCL can push the camera just a little bit farther, maybe add in a telephoto lens perhaps, then I will be super excited to see what the TCL 30 Pro 5G looks like, because this is only the second flagship phone that they've made, and it's already really good. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank TCL for sending over the TCL 20 SE and TCL 20 Pro 5G for our testing. And I'd like to reiterate that, as always, TCL had zero editorial input on this review. These are my words. I'd like to thank Cliff not only for his hard work behind the scenes, but also for his look at the Surface Duo and for being crazy enough to buy the Surface Duo. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.